Good Friday, the day marked by Christians as the day when Jesus Christ was put to death by the Roman authorities on a cross. It's an event which, along with his resurrection three days later, is at the heart of what it means to say, I am a Christian. Through this event, according to the Gospel accounts, death is in some sense overcome. And for people of other faiths, and many who say they have no faith at all, death is not seen as the end. It's merely a doorway to a new kind of existence. But how do these beliefs influence the way people approach our final days on this earth? Shouldn't Christians, for example, positively embrace death so that they can hopefully get to heaven as quickly as possible? In this edition of Things Unseen, we will hear from Rick, a man with a motor neuron condition and a terminal prognosis. I've always believed that when I do die, I will simply change my address. Katie Harrison from the research centre Comrades will share findings into British patterns of belief about life after death. And in the studio, we'll be joined by Toby Scott from Hospice UK, the palliative care nurse Katie Cantley from St Joseph's Hospice here in London, and on the line from the West Country by Tony Walter, whose title might raise a few eyebrows. He's the professor of death studies at the University of Bath. First of that encounter with Rick Nelms, a 59-year-old married man with three children who was diagnosed with primary lateral sclerosis, a degenerative motor neurone condition, four months ago. He was once an atheist but converted to Christianity as an adult in his mid-twenties. I went to talk to him in the Cambridgeshire village of Comberton in his local parish church. Hello, Rick. Good morning. Hi, good morning. It's really nice to meet you. Very good to see you. What a beautiful church. It is. It's lovely. It's a classic village church. Thanks for talking to us this morning. That's OK. We'll uh, go somewhere to get uh, comfortable and we can yeah. sit down and, 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 and chat. OK, great. Your diagnosis, how does it actually affect your, your daily life at the moment? I was previously a very active man. I used to uh, cycle to work 12 miles a day. I used to do all my own DIY. I built a two-storey extension and things like that onto my house. And now I'm largely confined to a wheelchair. So it's changed everything. It's a terminal illness? Uh, yes, it is. Yeah. Yes, uh, I, I think probably the current rate of progress, I reckon I've got probably about five years left. You've not always been a, a believer. How have you come to Christian faith as a, an adult? Much to my surprise, I have to say, I was uh, a fairly vehement atheist and then I had a series of experiences. And then one day the local church shoved a notice through the door saying, come to our bonfire party. And uh, the vicar said, did you know that when Jesus died and came back to life, he wasn't seen by just one person or just a few people. He was seen by hundreds and he ate with them. And that was the point at which I decided that there might be something worth investigating. Since that time, and particularly given your diagnosis, have there been doubts or has your journey been one of growing conviction? Although life has been very difficult, I've been very fortunate in the sense that uh, faith is a gift and I've been gifted a great deal of faith. I've always believed that when I do die, as Billy Graham put it, I will simply change my address. And I don't think that's of me. I don't think it can be. 
I think my struggles in life have been too difficult for that possibly to have been me. So I believe that is what they describe in the Bible as the gift of faith. And I've been very lucky. Has there been an experience of anger at all? Because, I mean, your uh, condition statistically is a very rare one. You've, you've followed a life of faith and this has happened to you. Have you felt yeah. angry with God? I felt angry with God from time to time when I was suffering from mental health problems. Uh, but in terms of this condition, no, I don't feel angry with God. I do sometimes feel angry with God that he allows suffering. But I understand the sort of logic that says that there is brokenness in the world. And if God simply transformed everything and made it all rosy and beautiful, then we would no longer have freedom to choose to love him or not. And uh, that freedom is extremely important because he's maintained it all the way through since the beginning of creation. Does faith take away all your fears about dying and death? For me personally, faith takes away the fear about what comes next. It takes away the fear of having done various things during life and then that's it. And uh, for me, the knowledge that after I die, I will be in heaven with Jesus forever. I don't know what that means. I don't understand what that means. I don't know what it looks like. But whatever it is, it sounds pretty great to me. Looking at the narrative of what happens at Good Friday yeah. and beyond, what, why does that provide such encouragement and hope for you? Because we all sin. That separates us from God. And the reason why Jesus had to die on the cross and had to come back to life after being dead was that through doing that, he paid the price for our sin to bring the final triumph over death so that we would then be able to go and be with God forever. I don't want this to sound facile. Are you looking forward to dying? I like living. I like painting. I like reading. I love my family. The longer I live, the older my children will be and the better capable of coping with daddy dying. So don't get me wrong, I, I love living, but I'm not dreading dying. Listening to that interview with me are our three guests. First of all, Katie, a palliative care nurse. Rick has clearly found himself focusing on what he believes about an afterlife. Is that common in your experience when people get a terminal diagnosis? It certainly is. Um, I've worked at St Joseph's Hospice in Hackney now for about 11 years, and it's um, a kind of a gradual slowing down, saying goodbye, preparing for the next stage of the journey. It's a difficult one unless you see it, but it's, yeah, it's definitely a, a move from this place to this place. And you've had literally hundreds and hundreds of people pass through the hospice that you've dealt with in that, in that condition. Yeah, hundreds of deaths. I've looked after patients on the wards when I was a ward sister, um, but I've also looked after patients in their own homes and... Yeah, no, no two deaths are the same. For me, um, it, it, it's, it's such a visceral event. Um, so I was at my um, sister's daughter's birth last year and as mums we're encouraged to have birth plans and I think having a death plan is, is just as important. 
Toby, from Hospice UK, obviously you must have a, a fairly reasonable overview of how this plays out across the whole country, but I can see how weak faith might get stronger as you approach death. Is it also the case that some people lose faith and that, that they have a sort of loss of nerve as, as those final days approach? There are as many different responses to death as, as there are people. Everyone comes with differently depending on what they're studying, what is in relation to faith or no faith. The important thing for us as an organisation is that, as Katie was saying, is that the people get the death they want, they've, they've prepared for it and they're ready mm. for it, they've got their practical plans in place, they've written their will, they've planned out their funeral, they've talked about things like organ donation, and also that people have made clear their wishes, what treatments they don't want or do want as they approach the end of their life when they can no longer speak for themselves. So you've got to get all the practical stuff, mm. but there is an aspect, although getting the practical stuff is really important to do, once that's done you are then left with time to dwell on the hereafter or the infinite or however you want to describe it or however you want to approach it. big questions. And I think people will do it differently. A lot of hospices were rooted in Christian origins. A lot of them were named after saints. The hospice movement itself, Cicely Saunders, who founded it 51 years ago now, was a Christian herself who founded it because of her Christian drive. But there are also a lot of other faith groups involved in end-of-life issues humanists and, and non-faith groups as well so you can't I think create a universal rule about how people are going to approach it what matters is that we are ready for it he's coming for us whatever our faith and whether we like it or not we are going to die let's bring in the professor of death studies hello <laughs> yes as well as people's religious faith uh, affecting how they approach death I think the opposite happens uh, an encounter with mortality actually can affect people's religious belief or lack of it. For example, in the Second World War, there's some survey evidence that suggests, or interview evidence rather, that a number of people who were on active service in the war and were under fire and faced horrendous things and saw their mate blown up in the tank next to them, that kind of thing, some of them who had been Christian lost their faith as a result of those experiences, saying, I- I've seen bodies blown to bits and I- when you die, that's all there is. And others who had been atheist or agnostic came to faith as a result of those battle experiences. So that encounter with mortality can work both ways. Then in more peaceful deaths, a surprising number of people have some kind of, I'm not quite sure the best phrase is, but some sort of nearing death vision in, in, in the day or two or three before they die. Mm. They have some kind of experience, maybe of a relative who has already died, inviting them on to wherever it is, and that may actually strengthen their faith. There was a remarkable study published in the British Medical Journal way back in 1975, a frustratingly short article by a Bavarian doctor who had interviewed a large number of very, very seriously ill people and then compared the responses of those who died within 24 hours and, and those who lived a bit longer. And he found that the levels of belief in some kind of afterlife was far higher in those within 24 hours of death than those who are comparably ill but not quite dying. So, And we don't know why that is, and the study's never been replicated, but it suggests that some, you know, actually the encounter with your own or possibly others' deaths can radically affect your faith. So it works both ways. I'll, I'll come back to you, Tony, in a moment, but Katie just wanted to chip in. Yeah, yeah um, just in response to that, or kind of echoing um, what you've just said, that's certainly my experience of working with patients, approaching their kind of final days or weeks, often they'll talk of having seen loved ones who've already died, um, visiting them, seeing them, talking to them, hearing them, and often they'll talk about going back home. 
and it's not necessarily home if they're in the hospice. They can be within their own bed in the home and it just makes me think that we're uh, foreigners here on this mm. on this earth, in mm. this world, and actually we are all destined to return home. Do you see people who arrive at the hospice initially in an agitated, restless state who, as a result of maybe some of these experiences, pass into a much more resigned but peaceful state of acceptance? That was a huge difference between perhaps a, a busy oncology ward where I first started my nurse career and um, a hospice setting. Obviously, if someone's got a terminal illness, they've got the physical components of, of the body dying. But looking at the social aspects, the emotional aspects, the, the, the family, the spiritual elements that are going on in someone's life, and, and often patients can come into the hospice metaphorically fighting it's kind of a battle it's a fight they don't want to be there and sometimes just kind of bearing with that pain and being present with them it enables them to let go of some of that and get into the flow yeah definitely tony just a question really about the fear of death i mean every night we go to sleep we close Mm. our eyes Mm. we for 99.9999% of the whole existence of creation have not existed. Mm. And yet there's this absolutely visceral fear of extinction. Mm. Is this new and modern, or do you think it's a constant in the human psyche? Gosh, that's such a difficult question to (laughs) answer. In a sentence. (laughs) Can I have more than one sentence? (laughs) Thank you. Well, to give my potted history of this, and it it is my take on it, not every scholar would perhaps have the same view. Um, About 10,000 years ago, when humans settled down and discovered farming and agriculture and ceased being hunter-gatherers, it seems that the most common sense of what happened after death was that not everybody, but certainly those who had power and influence and status in life, after death became ancestors. And what those who, who survived had to do was engage in various rituals to keep the ancestors happy, stop the ancestors from causing trouble, but also looking to the ancestors for, for help and guidance. And uh, you'd only really be an ancestor for a, a generation or two, unless you really were a kind of founding ancestor of the whole tribe. And then once anybody who remembered you had themselves died, then you kind of just sort of disappear into the, the mists of time. And then I suppose, you know, 3,000 years or so ago, you get the beginnings of the idea of eternal life, living forever. You find that certainly for the only the pharaoh and one or two perhaps of his, his henchmen in ancient Egypt... But then you get the beginning of the world religions who are promising eternal life, physical resurrection, reincarnation for everybody. And that, I mean, is extremely attractive. And it has been extremely attractive, especially for people who didn't have much status in life and therefore probably wouldn't become a family or or, or a tribal ancestor. But you do find, especially amongst the monotheisms, religions that just believe in one God, that only the one God should be worshipped. And this is true of Islam, Judaism and Christianity. Real hostility towards venerating family ancestors. You find it in the Old Testament. They really, really want to get rid of the Canaanite religion, which worshipped nature and venerated ancestors. It's seen as pagan. It's seen as pagan, that's Mm. right. Although you do have it in Christianity, in in popular Catholicism, you know, you've got the saints who can put in a good word 
to the Virgin or put in a good word to, to Jesus for you. And very often in popular Catholicism, you know, your auntie or your grandmother is almost like the Virgin Mary, almost like a saint. You can pray to her. There is that kind of going on. But in Protestantism, the real ban of any kind of interaction between the living and, and the dead. But no, what I really say, I would say is that this idea of, of eternal life for everybody forever is a construction of what we now call the world religions. And it kind of goes back about 3,000 years. And basically, this whole approach to ancestors, is, is that, do you think, is that fading? Or are we seeing any kind of revival of that kind of interest in, in our engagement with, with our past and our the people who preceded us? Yeah, well, I mean, I think in a way it's always been around. Psychologists clearly show that a lot of people who are bereaved, they don't let go of the dead and move on. They, they continue their relationship with the person in some kind of way. Love, you know, doesn't disappear just because the person's died. So they kind of continue a bond and move on. So they move on with the dead, not without the dead. And I think ancestor veneration has always been a way in which that relationship between the living and the dead is articulated. And, and then, of course, the world religions, and especially Protestantism and even more secularism, sort of said, well, you can't really do that. So there wasn't really a way of articulating that. But now that hardly anybody goes to Sunday school, a lot of people are not very religiously literate, it's as though the Bible or the bishop's arm on your shoulder saying, no, 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 you can't relate to the dead. <laughs> that, that's no longer there anymore and people are rediscovering a kind of spiritual language for, for talking about their relationship with the dead. And it's especially coming out online among younger people in the language of angels, the idea that the dead has become an angel. And, of course, angels have wings, they fly back to earth and they look after the living and they, they give the dead some sort of agency so you can have an ongoing relationship of love and care in which both sides are doing the caring. I thought we were having such an august discussion and social media seems to get into everything. Ah, but yeah, are you, yeah, are you yeah, seriously yeah. suggesting that people tweet to the dead or it's a curious kind of situation where where i mean in the old days you couldn't make a telephone call to the dead because they haven't got a number. And a therapist might recommend you write a letter to the dead, but you certainly can't go down the street and put it in the post box because there's no address that, <laughs> that the GPA would recognise. But on social media, you can actually, in some of these media, you can actually still post a message. And it doesn't feel any different, really, from posting the message to the person when they're alive. Now, obviously, the person who's posting the message knows that the person is physically dead, but it creates an environment in which it sort of becomes more plausible and possible to write the dead as though they are somehow still reading it, even though you know, one level, that they're probably not. Because when you tweet to a celebrity, you don't expect to get an answer. No, no. And it's the same, you don't expect to get an answer, but it doesn't stop the action itself. No, and yeah. it certainly reflects your ongoing respect, love, affection for the person who physically has died. That's right. Well, for this programme, we put in a call to Katie Harrison, director of the Comrades Faith Research Centre. Comrades polled a large number of British adults a year ago for the BBC about religious belief. And I wanted to find out from Katie what her findings told us about belief in an afterlife. People do believe, in general, that something happens after you die. It's interesting to look at, particularly at the way that people from different religions answer this question. So if we ask Christians, 61% of them will say that they believe there is some sort of life after death. If we ask people who are in a religion other than Christian, and we're talking about people in Britain um, at the moment, 69% um, of them. If people have no religion or identify with no religion, the number is much lower there. 21% of those people say that they believe in life after death. But 
if we think about that for a minute, that's people who have no religion, and yet still one in five of those people believe that something might happen after we die. How do you account for that? I mean, it's a large number of people. It's 20% of people who are not linked to any religious faith at all say, my physical existence isn't all there is to existence and, and being, yeah. you know? Yeah, or my physical existence might not be. So there yeah. may be a sense of keeping one's options open. But I think what it tells us is that just as the category of Christian is very diverse, that means different things to different people, and equally the same with, with many other religions. So the, the category of no religion is very mixed. So there will be some people in that sample who very much believe that the material life is all there is. They have a narrative and a way of looking at the world that's stated. Um, so they might call themselves an atheist or a humanist or a secularist of, of some kind. Um, but also within that category are lots of people who just haven't really thought about it or perhaps used to engage with some sort of religious tradition and have dropped off and therefore don't st still tick the box anymore. And that in itself is fairly new to this generation, it used to be in Britain, that people would tick a religion box in a survey out of habit. And often, if they lived in England, it was Church of England. If they lived in Scotland, it was Church of Scotland. Now what we see is people ticking the box of no religion if they feel like, well, perhaps I was brought up Catholic but haven't been for ages, so I better just put none. And that is a new phenomenon that we're seeing in this area, which means that you're mopping up people who have brought with them some beliefs and perhaps even some things they do, they may say that they pray. Yeah. Um, we don't quite know who they're praying to, but they may be doing something, but they're not necessarily hardcore atheists. You'd expect that if people got older that their belief in afterlife might go up, but is there much of a story here about the difference in attitudes between the younger and the older generations? We wondered about that. We wondered about whether approaching death and being more mindful of that as you lose family members and friends and go to more funerals as you get older might show an increase in belief in life after death. We also wondered whether older people might be more likely to believe in life after death because they were brought up in a generation that was more religious practicing in, in this country where more people attended church. Actually, the data doesn't show any real variance in terms of age. So at one end of the spectrum, 18 to 24-year-olds, 44% of them say they believe in life after death. And 65-plus, the other end of the spectrum, 42%. So that's equivalent, basically. It's the same. And across each of those age ranges, we, we see a range of 42 to 52% of people saying they believe in life after death. So we're the jury's out. We're about half and half. However old you are as an adult in this country, um, you're half and half on whether there's life after death. Katie, you know, for Christians, Good Friday is the day when death is defeated and, and you can't have Good Friday and resurrection separated. And yet in the data, we seem to have about a quarter of people who say they're Christians who don't believe in this message of the triumph of life over death, which is a bit surprising. That's when you look at everybody who identifies as Christian. Um, when you also look at people who identify as Christian and also go to church, then you find much higher levels of people believing in the resurrection. So perhaps what that tells us is that people who identify as Christian and don't go to church are not being regularly reminded of that doctrine. It's not something that they've chosen to subscribe to, and they choose to identify as a Christian for other reasons than their actual worship and religious practice. Katie, to bring this back to Good Friday... Yes those disciples fled and weren't with Jesus at that moment and accompanied him, but Mary and the good disciple were the ones who were truly there to the end. And maybe there's a moral there in the way that we accompany and hold people's hands right up to that moment of when they breathe their final breath. Very much so. I was at my grandfather's death um, in a hospice a few years ago and my uncle couldn't be present in the same way, perhaps, because of my experience as a nurse. I think that's 
why palliative care is so important as well in, in, in someone who's approaching the end of life because it's about not fleeing from that angst. It's not fleeing from the, the, the pain or the distress. It's kind of bearing with it. And often that's all someone needs um, to say, this isn't too much for me, so it's not too much for you. It gives someone the courage to to face it, I guess. Toby, your own father, I understand, had a, a strong faith at the time of his death. Is that what brought you into this, this area of work? And, and how was his passing from this life? It was, I realised in hindsight, about as good as it can be. He died in his own bed, in his own home, my mum lying next to him, my younger sister sleeping upstairs, and he was not in pain, he'd made all his plans, he was spiritually at peace, and he'd had a good long life into his 80s. So I rather naively assumed that's how it was for everybody, and it was only when I got back to work after uh, a couple of weeks off, and it was this odd experience, first of all, that lots of people suddenly felt able to talk to me about their own bereavement they hadn't been able to talk to before because there's a sense of once you are bereaved, you're in a gang mm-hmm. and only people who've been through the same experience are allowed to join. Um, someone described it as the invisible army of the bereaved. So there was that in itself. But also I realised actually the extent to which it had been, despite the fact it was the most upsetting experience of my life when he died, it was as good as it could have been, and other people had it far, far worse. They'd seen someone they truly loved either die in a place they didn't want to be or without having made plans. You then have arguments about what type of funeral they want while the body is still warm. You know, terrible, terrible experiences. So that's what, in a sense, what brought me into this field is the desire for everyone to have the extraordinary high-quality end-of-life care that my dad had and the good experience because he'd been an active participant. I remember the point when he started talking about planning his funeral and I was really upset. I was going, no, you'll bury us all. You know, it, it felt at that point, before I was in this area, before I understood it, like he was giving up. And actually he wasn't giving up. He was preparing himself and he was preparing us. Mm. And it was his final gift to us that there was nothing to fuss or argue about because he'd made all the plans. Everything we did, we knew is what he wanted. And that was a great sense of peace at a really troubling time. And I understand you've been doing some work with the, the Muslim community. Are there cultural differences here that one has to bear in mind? Because, you know, Good Friday is essentially a Christian story. But, I mean, these huge issues affect absolutely everybody, believer and non-believer. Absolutely. I think it's, it's, it's really it's been a very interesting experience. We've, we've done a lot of work with the uh, British Muslim community. I've been able to visit Gardens of Peace, which is Britain's only dedicated Muslim burial ground, and really give me an understanding not just of the, of the end-of-life rituals and the grieving rituals of Islam, but also just the wider sense of, of Islam as religion. There are similar issues in Judaism and, and other faiths as well, and particularly about who should be with a person uh, as they're nearing death and who should be with the body after they've died. These rituals are very, very important. How we grieve someone, how we remember someone, is hugely influenced by the, the point at which they died. Mm. And if it goes well and they've got what they wanted and the cultural expectations are met, then it's easier to grieve and it's easier to go on to have the happier memories of when they were younger and alive. Mm. If it's a bad experience, you stay fixated on what made it bad and it is a huge block to getting on to having a healthy grief. So it's very important to get this right. Can can I chip in here? Yes, Tony. I think you can probably divide everybody into those who would go along with uh, that wonderful quote from Shakespeare, there are more things in heaven and earth ratio. You know, we uh, don't... Dreamt of in your uh, philosophy. Dreamt of in your philosophy. You know, I, I can't philosophize about it, I can't really explain it, but I just have this gut feeling that death is not the end, there's mm. more to life than that. And then there's other people who just say, when you're dead, you're dead, and that's it. And I think as we become less and less formally 
doctrinally Christian, our society, certainly the, the Christian or ex-Christian part of society, will divide into those two groups. Those, those who say when you're dead, that's it. And others who have this indefinable sense that actually there is something else. And when Katie was talking about accompanying and just being with people, increasingly that is the kind of person that I think we're going to be sitting with as they're dying. Last weekend I went to see an extraordinary film called Coco. I don't know whether you've come across no, this film, no. Tony. No. Well, I know that Toby has, and it has a very, very profound insight about death, all linked to the Mexican Day of the Dead, which I'm sure as Professor of Death Studies mm -hmm. you yeah. know all about. But I'll leave Toby to explain <laughs> one of the big concepts about this film because I, it's I, very I, interesting. Absolutely, I don't want to spot it. It is, it is a, it's a beautiful film in its own right, but what's interesting is it just takes death as a given. Death in itself is not the problem. It's something that happens and it's not really anything to be frightened about or worried about. What matters in the context of the film is being forgotten, of being sufficiently that many generations removed from the living that you finally slip out of memory. And that's the things of fear. And the point about the Day of the Dead ceremony is it keeps the family ancestors, we were talking about before, in your memory in some degree. It's only a photograph or a story about them. You gather to share those so they are not forgotten. But otherwise, death is seen as a perfectly satisfactory environment to be in and nothing to worry about but it's it's being forgotten is the big concern and that struck me as a really really interesting approach and, and comes back to what we were talking about earlier i'm wondering tony if you were one of the people being asked by that uh, comres inquiry about your own belief in afterlife are there any particular things that have happened to you that might at least push you to think that you're leaving the door open for the possibility of life beyond this physical existence. Yes, I was a committed Christian. I would now call myself a agnostic, but I certainly can describe a couple of events which have happened to me which certainly mean I would never be definite about what happens after death. One was when I was in my young 30s and a neighbour who was on her own was dying and I was the kind of main person that kind of organised neighbours to go and visit her in hospital, and I was effectively the, the next of kin, I suppose. And back then, I hardly ever woke up in the night, slept right through. Uh, if I did wake up, it was for a very definite reason. And uh, one night, when Molly was uh, in hospital and seriously unwell, I just woke up, and I just happened to notice the time, which was quarter past two, and I thought, oh, and I went back to sleep again. And... Uh, then I got up in the morning, the phone went at quarter past eight, and it was the ward sister saying that Molly had died at a quarter past two. Now, that could just be a coincidence, but it might not have been, and I'm not going to necessarily just rule it out as a coincidence because I don't believe in, in that kind of thing. The other one was some years later when a very good friend who, and by this time I was agnostic, very good friend died of breast cancer, and I remember going to see her the day after she died and she was beautifully laid out on, on the hospice bed. And I had this deep, deep feeling, almost belief, that she was now with the God that I no longer believed in, but she did. And 25 years later, I still believe she is with the God that I don't believe in. Now, that is something which can't be dreamt of in anybody's philosophy. <laughs> no, I think we can all endorse that. Thank you very much. And that's all for this Good Friday edition of Things Unseen. Uh, thanks to our panel members, Katie Cantley, Tony Walter and Toby Scott, uh, for their contributions. And next month, we'll be looking at something rather different, science fiction, and posing the question, what does it tell us about the big issues of life? From classics like Blade Runner to the new kids on the block such as Netflix's Altered Carbon, a window into our dreams. My name's Mark Dowd. 
and you've been listening to Things Unseen, which is a CTVC production. And you can hear this programme again and find other editions of Things Unseen at www.thingsunseen.co.uk.